So um, I just hope, I mean, the reason why I thought it would be nice to share is because it's hard just having one person come into a community like this to get a feeling of what a monastic environment actually looks like and feels like and how it might operate. So the, the hope is, is that just by even just having a glimpse of one celebration and having a, uh, a sense of what the building looks like and the layout looks like and how the monks and nuns operate, but there's a little bit more of a feeling of what, what happens in a monastic environment and how it operates. But what's also um, a little bit hard to convey is the feeling of being in a field of blessings. And so, you know, what, what happens in a monastic community is, is, is that it becomes like an oasis that people can connect with and engage in on just a whole variety of levels. And so there are people who come who like to meditate, and there are people who come because they like to help organize, and there are people who come because they like to work in the garden or help manage the forest. And there are people who come because they help with transport. There are some people who come and they just like to cook. You know, some people come and the thing that they do is they work as the accountants or balance the books. You know, some people come and they stay with us as guests. Some people just come for the day or they just come for celebrations. And, you know, one of the ways in which a a monastic community operates is is that it becomes like a meeting point or a place where a whole community gathers. So you've got a multi-international gathering point. And... What I mean, I'm not real good at politics, but I know that some of the various different cultures represented in their own home countries are actually not in such good working relationships with each other. And yet the monastery is like a neutral zone, a safe zone, and everyone is welcome. And so there's no need for anyone to be of a particular belief system or economic background or you know everyone is welcome and because the way the uh, teachings come through is it's not belief based it's more experiential based then oftentimes particularly in a non-Buddhist culture like in England a lot of the people who are interested in meditation are not Buddhists and have very strong and clear commitments to other faiths and that doesn't pose any kind of a problem for us so the diversity element is rich and the, the possibility of people coming together in a, in a kind of neutral space that's committed to uh, supporting awakening is, is rich. And so without having a feeling for what it might feel like, you know, I can understand why the Buddha said that, you know, in contrast to giving, for example, 84,000 uh, several bowls filled with gold as alms, you know, is, is the, it's greater still to give somebody who has right view. And compared to giving a hundred people who have right view, it's greater still to give to somebody who is an enlightened being. And greater still to give a hundred people who are enlightened beings is to give to uh, a Buddha or a fully awakened one. And greater still than to give to food, uh, to feed somebody who's completely awakened is to offer requisites or food to the, to the Sangha that the, the Buddha supports. Because in offering to the Sangha, you're supporting this field of blessings that an enormous number of people can benefit from. 
And so to offer food or requisites to the Sangha or to help make it possible for buildings to be built so monks and nuns can live in monasteries creates a field of merit which is uh, even greater than uh, the merit that would be given to given to a Buddha. And seeing the way in which there's a kind of rippling effect in the larger community and how many different people can benefit, I can understand why that kind of hierarchy of value was placed in that kind of a way. Because even though monks and nuns, many of us are still practitioners ourselves, because we are practicing in this kind of a way, in this kind of an environment, with these kinds of values, it creates an opportunity for a, a, a myriad number of people to have contact with the Dhamma and have access to teachings and support for their practice in a way where an individual person is not able to do that. So there's a lot of richness that comes. So like in, our, in the monastery, the meditation hall is never locked and people are welcome anytime and it's a place that's just set for meditation and people are just anytime, anytime, are welcome to go in there and welcome to sit there. And sometimes people come because they just want some time out from, you know, a frazzled time at work or with family. And sometimes people come because there's something of just major significance. They just need to touch into some stillness and see if the stillness can help support. And sometimes they come because they just want to be with good friends who are also enjoying the joy of what it is to be part of a, an extended community and support in that kind of way. So, what are your impressions or questions or about this? Hmm. These ten questions. I'll try to start with just a couple. The the the, the six hundred people who attended there, people who work and live in the community and have regular commercial lives, and they're, they're householders, I guess. Absolutely. And how do they interact? Uh, this is I'm, I'm familiar with Western churches and stuff. Uh, uh-huh. What forget the term services? Does the community receive services from the monks? Spiritual counseling or Dhamma lessons? You mentioned the hall being. So the way the Chitters Monastery operates, you know, every monastery is going to have a slightly different flavor, but the way Chitters Monastery operates is, is that on Saturday night there's a meditation which includes chanting and sitting quietly for 40 minutes, and then there's a, a Dhamma talk for an hour, okay? And anyone is welcome to come to that, and you don't need to make any kind of reservations or anything, it's just available. And then on Sunday um, evening, at 7.30, there's a very short um, chanting and meditation, guided meditation, so meditation instruction is given. And then we have recycles of seasons. So there's a retreat season that happens in the wintertime and a retreat season that happens in the summertime, which corresponds to the rainy season in Asia. Might be the rainy season here, but that's another question. And during these retreat seasons, there's often a period of time of intensive meditation practice and intensive instruction that's given. And it's set up in a way so that the people who are interested and want to participate in the local community can. So we don't have a retreat center as such, and we don't have a setup to do retreats for lay people in the way that we have them here. But the whole monastic community will go on retreat. 
And when the whole monastic community goes on retreat, then the lay community can support by helping with the cooking. And then the cooking time and the Dhamma instruction time is usually set up so that people who are participating with the cooking can hear the instruction. And then there's usually enough people on board to give a hand, hopefully, so that everyone can have plenty of hours a day in the meditation hall sitting as well. Yeah. So that's one level of service. Then the other level of service is is that because the monastery operates as a donation place, and it's often the custom that people come and they give alms in uh, corresponding with different kinds of occasions. So um, a baby blessing. The family clan will come and they'll bring the baby and the baby will have a blessing and have some words of encouragement for the parents in a special string and be sprinkled. Or a wedding blessing. Or when somebody dies, it's customary for people to come and give alms in memory of the person who's passed. Or in traditional families, on the anniversary of a person's death for a number of years, that will happen. Or, you know, so... Or people can come, like sometimes when students are in exams, they come in order to give encouragement for the student that they have a good result on their exam. Or sometimes people come on their birthdays. So on their birthdays they come and they bring alms and they bring the meal for the community. So because the mealtime offering ends up being an occasion where people, the normal things of life, birth and death and birthdays and... Uh, examinations and jobs and new houses and marriages and all of that is celebrated in the monastery by way of bringing offerings for the meal then what happens is, is is that an extended community begins to form around people who are supporting each other to do these kinds of things now in the regular schedule of a monastery, there's the positive day, which is the full moon and the new moon, where the monks and the nuns, they do their a recitation of their rules and they make confession of any kind of transgression. And occasionally we have all-night meditation vigils, so we stay up. Normal meditation starts at 7.30, and rather than finishing at 8.30 or 9.30, which is the norm, we stay up until midnight or until 4 or 5 o'clock in the next morning. So we have an all-night meditation vigil. And those meditation vigils are also open. So there's a kind of open-door meditation retreat thing that people plug into according to the season and the circumstance. And that then creates a kind of network of other people who are also interested in meditating and also interested in the teachings as they come through in our way of talking. So our custom is not to prepare talks and go through this and this and this, but to use just the immediacy of what's happening in the present moment as a, as a kind of platform for speaking about experience and as a way to help reflect on what's going on in the mind. So then, you know, when people are close to the community, uh, like David, you know, he was very close to the community. He and his wife, Nimala, lived in Brighton, which is about an hour and a half away. And twice a week, every single week, they would come and they would make the effort to stay with us in the evening time for the all-night meditation vigil. And so, and these two were remarkable, you know, because, well, we would sit from 7.30 at night until... Uh, 3 o'clock in the morning and we'd have a break at midnight for tea they wouldn't move okay so they'd sit there and they wouldn't get off their cushions until the midnight drink and you know so their practice and their commitment was unusual 
And she got sick and had cancer, and the community was intimately involved in her process of dying, and because it was like she was a member of the family, you know. So uh, how we relate to the extended community a little bit depends on the kind of closeness with which they are connected to us. Yeah. But like, okay, so there's probably, what, uh, 2,000 people on the mailing list for Chithurst and probably 6,000 people on the mailing list for Amravati, all right? So our, our um, what, what, congregation is large. <laughs> now, sometimes those people only come once a year or twice a year. But some of those people come regularly, mm-hmm. yeah. And obviously the monks will talk with the community members. That's right, yeah. So people are welcome to come and ask questions after the meal, or if they stay as a guest, they're welcome to ask questions. And then also things have been set up so that there's lay forums where there are days where people come and talk about topics and discuss them together, and that's a time for interaction. And then there's tea on Sunday evening, and then the nuns have a tea on Friday evening. And so built into the structure are ways in which there's interaction. Tyler? Mm. You had alluded to something, um, things that you thought would benefit by changes Mm. here. Could you talk about that a little? Well, um, the focus in the traditional monasteries is very strongly on the monks. And so the nuns are a little bit in the background and that uh, doesn't really work that well in a western society Um, and so I think uh, one of the things that's needed is for the women to have ground to come into their own strength and their own voice to have their own ability to find ways that work for them Um, other things is is, is that it it has never been the case in in any of these monasteries that any lay person has given a talk in the Dhamma Hall. And so the premise is, is that the monks and the nuns are the ones who have the experience and the knowledge and that they are the ones having had the training that they have a lot to offer. And it's not as if they're, that's an incorrect premise because, you know, if you consider the way our lifestyle is built every year, we have effectively two, three-month retreats, Okay. And so for as long as we've been a monastic, we have two, three-month retreats a year. And our life is dedicated to the Dhamma. So it's not an entirely incorrect premise that there's, a, there's quite a lot of chance that the monks and nuns will have more experience with direct practice and also more experience in contact with the Dhamma, that their uh, depth might have more in it. But as an exclusive thing, or as, a, as an absolute thing, or as there's no other possibility, then I think that actually needs to be examined. And I also think that there's a way in which anybody, wherever they're at, has something that they can offer. And so, you know, the youngest member of the community has something that they can offer. You know, even if it's just their youngest experience, you know, what that is. So I think that is something that I would be interested in exploring different forms that would allow the voice not only to be the voice of the monastic community, but to include the lay community in terms of their experience and their depth. Yeah. 
Then another thing which has been changing somewhat, and I think it need, continues to need to change, is, is that in Thailand the model is, is that the abbot is something akin to like a god, you know, and their word is just the law. And so their word is the law, and everyone's practice is just to watch what arises around what happens when they say whatever they say. And in the Western communities, that absolutely just doesn't work. Okay, we don't, you know, we're born in a democratic society, and we're used to having feedback mechanisms and feedback loops, and and so it's not as if hierarchy needs to be completely abolished, but there needs to be systems of feedback mechanisms that uh, are operating, and the nuns work much better with cooperative leadership teams rather than a single person who's in charge, and so all of that needs to kind of continue to be part of our leadership structures and the way we start interacting with the community. But I think one of the things that, that I have experienced and I've seen in the sisters is, is that I have absolute confidence that the teachings are um, profound and have enormous depth and are deeply they're liberating. Okay? But I also have seen in my own personal practice that there are psychological issues that the insight that comes from practice doesn't necessarily address. And when you have people living in a, a community for decades together, and uh, in a situation like this where you know we don't have the resources to, to do things um, other than situations that have been offered, and you can see psychological patterns manifesting in various different ways, but in the way that we're living with each other. And one of the uh, weaknesses or things that have not yet been developed in a tradition which has the richnesses of a contemplative tradition is a way of bringing a profound deep uh, inquiry into some of these psychological issues and marry them in a, in a spiritual path. And for me, with my own personal story with that, um, I can see that it's been absolutely essential. And watching the sisters as a subgroup within a larger group where we've had to struggle a lot with, you know, some very classic things that people who are in subgroups in a larger group where our needs are not necessarily made a priority have to deal with, you know, these issues of, of uh, and how they manifest on a psychological level have been things that we've had to attend to. So one of the other areas of importance that I see is being able to develop a mature, sophisticated uh, way of dealing with psychological work in a tradition which is committed to profound spiritual inquiry. That's big. (laughs) (laughs) It is Is one thing that you're trying to do in Colorado Springs to manifest? This is right. Yeah, this is my vision. Yeah. Well, first of all, I know that when the intention is there on the onset, then the pathways can emerge. And I'm investigating being involved in different kinds of programs myself that will then give me access to people who have that kind of training and skill and give me that kind of training and skill myself. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, is is that, you know, how in a, a spiritual community oftentimes there are people who have resources and some people are accountants and some people are IT people and some people are have very uh, strong gifts in the psychotherapeutic world. 
That's another way. But that's tricky. And part of the reason why that's tricky is because the issues around boundaries and confidence need to be uh, very carefully maintained. And so a person who is a, um, uh, a lay member of a community is often not in a good position to be offering that kind of support in an in-depth way to the community because it needs, the boundaries need to be so clear. Yeah. So I have some ideas. And, um, but mostly what I have found is, is that the problem is not a lack of ideas and resources. The problem is, is a lack of interest and willingness to actually enter into that territory. You know, some people say that, well, whether there is a value or there's no value, is I'm not really interested in going that way. And so if a person in a senior position has that attitude, then oftentimes there's not a whole lot that can happen because there's no room for development. Yeah. So, how, how are conflicts dealt with in this Well, I know what happens in the nuns' community, and I know that over the last mm, seven, eight, ten years now, the sisters have developed tremendous resources in being able to deal with uh, a whole diversity of issues and being able to find skillful means to work with things and also to recognize when we don't have the capacity to deal with what's um, on the table and when we actually need to get outside support. And so, you know, being able to recognize when we have the capacity and when we don't is part of our increased skill. One of the things about sisters... I think, I mean, I don't know if this is true across the board with celibate women in general, but celibate women are, I mean, women are powerful, but celibate women are phenomenally powerful. And one of the ways that our power manifests is through an an almost unimaginable uh, sensitivity, okay? And so the sensitivity of being able to pick up what's actually going on is just, I have never encountered a group of people who are like it, you know? And so when that sensitivity is then tempered with skill, uh, that skill has the ability to hold a variety of complexity and then stay in empathetic relationship with people, even at times of adversity. And that is one of the reasons why I feel so passionate that creating places where nuns can train is so important. Because that ability to do that to actually stay in empathetic relationship at times of complexity and times of adversity is one of the things that I feel is going to be a turning point in our world. And in all of the years that I've lived and in all of the people that I've known and in all of the communities that I've visited, I have never seen any group that's more developed in that than what has happened through this community of nuns and the way that we've been practicing together. And so, as a nun, you know, I can certainly see it's not that being a nun is certainly the only path. I mean, I'm not advocating that. But what I can say is is that when the conditions are ripe and the training includes uh, this kind of development, what can happen has a phenomenal capacity for being of support. Is it, is it 
the same ideas together, or is there... Well, you know, one of the interesting characteristics about the forest tradition is that the forest tradition is based more on experience, the immediacy of what's arising in the present moment is our Dhamma inquiry, rather than a systematic study of the suttas. Now, that's not across the board. So, for example, at Abhayagiri Monastery in Northern California, they do spend a lot of time studying the suttas. Okay, and I imagine other forced monasteries also. But Ajahn Sumedho and the monasteries that are connected with him, most of them, don't have a systematic study of the suttas. Our systematic study is life, okay? And what arises in life and how we're relating to it. And so it's the immediacy of the present moment which gives us direct access to what's happening right now. Plus our understanding of using a monastic vehicle which has a, a fair amount of restraint and uh, clarity in terms of boundaries as a way of mirroring for our minds when desire is arising and when ill will is arising and how to do things in a way which is which is skillful or not skillful. So for many of us, you know, learning how to live in community is a acquired skill. I certainly was not born with it and my family certainly didn't teach that. And so for many of us from a Western society, just learning how to live in community requires both patience and time and quite a lot of skill. And so that itself gives uh, rich material for a practice as we're rubbing up against all kinds of people and characters that under most other circumstances we wouldn't necessarily choose to be either working with or living with or all the rest of that. But we're there, and so then we have to make the best of it, and the way that we make the best of it is to learn when it's useful to engage in discussion and when it's useful to step back and let things cool out and, and when you need to develop more ground of trust before you can talk about things and all of that. Yeah. Now, having said that, you know, there are times of the year when we can pick up different uh, studies or different suttas and explore them and, uh, and work with them. Um, and that just depends on what's happening with the various community leaders and where they're at and what kind of themes they're interested in. Yes. So some the community leaders may say, I, I'd like to learn more about mindfulness and the dominance or something. And maybe the monks will help provide that. So over the last um, 15 years or so, the monks and the nuns have had much more autonomy from each other. And so the sisters have had their own training. So we teach the monastic discipline and we have Dhamma discussions amongst our own community. And then there are occasions where we have themes where we share. So one of the things that's been happening at the different monasteries is there's been a sutta study or a Dhamma discussion group. And the way the joint Dhamma discussion group at Chitters has operated is an individual person will pick a theme and they'll do a 20-minute presentation and anybody who of the monastic sangha who was present who'd like to participate then discusses it. Yeah. But it's not like the sisters ask the monks and the monks tell us. Yes, I meant the yeah. community, the lay community, the, the householders. The householders. What happens with the householders is that there's um, what is known as a lay forum. And the lay forum is the day where at Chitters that's been organized so that um, topics can be discussed 
And so the same format happens, only there's a monk or a nun that's presenting for 10 or 15 minutes, and then one of the people in the lay community is presenting for 10 or 15 minutes, and then there's a discussion, and then, and then there's a, a larger circle coming back. Now, what has happened at Amravati, which is also lovely, is, is that the lay community has been in association with the monastery now for 30 years, and they've developed their own program. So they have their own retreats and their own discussions and their own meditations and their own um, newsletter and they have their own contributions and they have all kinds of things that are happening. And it's a very rich, alive, um, active group. And so they're living in relationship with the Sangha but they're not dependent on the Sangha. And they're using the forum that's been established as a way of, of exploring their own ideas and uh, talking about themes that are meaningful for them. I don't know the basis for this belief, but I believe I think a lot of people have a view that monks and nuns are um, well, that some economic determinists believe they're kind of parasite, and they don't understand the the interaction of the, the benefit that you've been you know, well documented in the CBD and have discussed tonight. I think that the, the sort of the value to the enlightenment is. I don't think a lot of people understand. Well, like, many people think mm. monks go to get away and kind of take care of themselves. Yes. Check out. Yeah. And, you know, if that, if there are any threads of that which have some relevancy or accuracy, would probably be revealed by individual scrutiny of individual motivations. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I can't make a blatant statement that is a refutal of that. Okay? But what I can say is, is, is that the blessings that come from the Sangha are incomparable. And that when there's something that is emerging which is of health, then everyone will benefit. Okay? And the way that emerges would be slightly dependent on the culture and the conditions in which the monastic community is establishing itself. And part of the reason why it's become clear to me that I've needed to step out and let go of the formal affiliations with the monasteries in England is because some of their ideas about what can be moved and what cannot be moved are fixed. And so my ideas are not fixed. And I see that, you know, on one hand I have a deep, profound love and respect for the monastic community, but I see that some of these things need to be explored and opened up and expanded and to allow to come into a fruition where, in fact, really it is a, a, a field of incomparable merit. And the only way that that can actually be the case is if the, 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 the goal of awakening becomes something that for everyone they are nourished in the process of being connected to this. Yes. Yeah. I have a question. Yes. Um, I think that Colorado Springs is kind of ultra... Conservative? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I couldn't agree more. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I'm there because my dad is there. And my dad hasn't been well. And so I've been visiting him and my brother, who've been living there for the last 14 years. And as a result of living there, then people have invited me to teach. And as a result of inviting me to teach, they invited me to come back and we're a part of the organization set up of getting Awakening Truth going. I have always had the idea of going to California. Okay, so for the past 10 years or so, I've thought of going to California, partly because that's where I'm from, 
but also partly because I see California as somehow a little bit more, I don't know what the right word is, the ground is fertile in terms of, uh, of possibilities of new models and also understanding the interface between emotional work and spiritual development. Okay? But at the moment, I'm in Colorado Springs. And I don't know if it's going to be that I stay there or not. You know, I've certainly told everybody that I, 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 I actually only think that this is a temporary place. Yeah. But I'm here. And while I'm here, I might as well make the most of it. And in the meantime, there's already people who have asked to come and train as novice nuns. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going ahead as if it's happening. And we will see whether or not there's enough support for this to be a sustaining endeavor or whether moving to California, which is what I have been thinking of doing for the last 10 years, is in fact the right option. So I don't know. But you're right. As a place for a progressive monastery that's interested in emotional development, one would not pick Colorado Springs as the first choice. Yeah. Where in California Well, I always thought Northern California, but I think it really depends on, you know, where there would be a group of people to support, you know. Maybe you should think about the curriculum. Well, you know, I'm in a place where there's all kinds of open space, you know. There aren't a lot of fixed things. And so, you know, for me, what's going to determine where I go is where I see that there is a, a cohesive group of support and where I see that the ground is the most fertile for doing what it is that I want to do. And I think it's going to take a little bit of time to get a sense of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why... There isn't an appreciation of the value of monastic life in the in the states. Is because most of the Buddhist community comes out of the Vipassana movement, and the Vipassana movement came because of Joseph and Jack and Sharon going to the east and coming back and wanting to extract the meditation technique out of a culture. Okay. So Jack, as you know, was a monk. Then he was a monk with Ajahn Chah for a number of years, and then he and Joseph and Sharon came back after having. Uh, practice meditation and thought, well, you know, what's needed is to instruct people in the teachings without so much of the culture. And yet, what one finds over the long run is, is, is that, you know, there's times when we're able to do meditation practice and actually times when what we need is community or what we need is devotion or what we need is access to our own goodness or what we need is just some tender loving care to help the frayed edges, you know, of some kind of a, of a, of something that is more than our own capacity to manage. And so the culture that's built around monastic life is not only built around meditation, okay? It's built around dana, it's around sila, it's around devotion, it's around celebration, it's around life events, and it also includes meditation, Okay? Now, I don't think because there's a culture that it means that we also have to take on board the cultural biases that come with the culture. 
And that's been part of the challenge that the sisters have had to wrestle with. This has been embedded in the culture that we are part of, our cultural biases that don't really work so well for us. And what we have come up against is just real clear, no, it can't be negotiated kind of statements. And so, you know, the sisters are in a process right now of trying to figure out, well, what do they want to do in response to that? And I certainly know what I want to do in response to that, yeah. But for me, I think there was, it wasn't as if, um, it takes a lot of maturity to recognize that the culture that some aspect of meditation is a part of is actually supports the meditation. And I remember, you know, Christopher Titmus was a meditation teacher of mine for many years, and I remember, you know, he used to, he used to make all kinds of funny statements about, you know, devotion and, and doing the chanting. And he had been a, a closet disc jockey, so he used to play, you know, music at the first part of the morning sitting. And then, and then he stopped the music, and then he would allow us to do chanting, but the chanting was only like three words, and then we could do more. And so gradually, 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 you know, there are aspects of what he thought, you know, absolutely you shouldn't have beginning to creep back into the style in the way that he was teaching, you know. But devotion, you know, devotion is not, I mean, it took me years to understand the role of devotion, you know. And, and I thought, you know, either you're a wisdom type or you're a devotion type. And if you're a devotion type, then basically you're a write-off. You know, it was like this completely dismissal attitude of, of a whole practice form that I really didn't have much experience with. And then I got sick and realized I didn't have the capacity to sit and reflect on my breath and the movements of mind arising in a way that normally you can when you're bright and clear and have energy. But I could always manage devotion. I could manage, I could bow and I could chant. And it wasn't until, you know, I was grappling with an illness that was you know, reasonably disabilitating for a very long period of time where I was humbled into recognizing the value and importance of devotion. It's not just for people who are write-offs and can't meditate, you know. And as a practice, it's a complete practice in and of itself, you know. So what... You know, a, a, a wisdom-based tradition that just relies almost exclusively on meditation and insight as an access leaves out all kinds of other things which are naturally built into a monastic community. Now, some of the ways it's built in can be a little bit rigid, and I don't necessarily think that the rigidity is helpful, you know. But the fact is, is that devotion has a place, and celebration has a place, and life events have a place. And there's natural equations where people can brighten their commitment to their precepts. It has a place. And it's like that's just normal, you know? I agree. In the post-work department, I think through mindfulness of the Dhammas encompasses everything. Everything you described, that nothing is left out to be mindful of. That's right. That's right. So a healthy, mature... Sangha of lay people have found their own rituals and their own ceremonies and their own devotion and their own ways of, of supporting each other during times of life transition 
And so what has come together is basically a kind of lay model of what happens when you're in a relationship with a monster. It's interesting over the last couple of years in the song, one of the things people most say they want is community. Year after year after year. <laughs> and it's something that we have. We keep trying to address it. And, then, and I think we've had some awareness that, well, yeah, if you just <coughs> sit on a Thursday night, that's an obstacle. <laughs> it doesn't help. Um, but so it's, it's a continued exploration for us. Right. Yeah. And that's why I think you can see so much joy in people's faces in that DVD, yeah. Mm-hmm. They were coming together as a community in celebration and support of something that they all valued. And how they all valued it and the way they all participated in it for them, there was all kinds of different ways. But the whole point of the celebration was to come together and have joy in giving to something that they all mm-hmm. felt good about. Okay? It wasn't about meditating, you know. that sort of strikes me, you know, is the sense of place that Shakers offers for all these people. And we've, you know, reflected sort of over the years on our kind of itinerant, you know, how we've been in places and, you know, moved. And we've been <coughs> residing now on Thursday nights at the lot for a number of years. But one thing that always comes back is like, do we need to really have our own place to mature as a sangha? You know, because we don't have a relationship with the monks there, really. I mean, we don't, we're not part of that community. We don't really know what they do, and they don't really, you know, there's not much interface between us and them. Right. And, and that sort of seems to me like not a problem, but maybe an impediment in some ways. Right. To cohesion. So, um, I can imagine that a monastery with Thai monks would be difficult for a community of mostly Western meditators to have a sense that that is their monastery, okay? Because the, the cultural divide is sufficiently uh, wide that it's going to be hard to navigate, yeah? But what's happening in monasteries in England is is that you have a group of Western monks and nuns, okay, who have spent now 30 years in these communities, and we have understanding of this territory because this has been the cultures that we have come out of in order to come into the monastery. So the 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 difference is noteworthy. Now, it's not that there only needs to be Western monks and nuns in monasteries in order for people to feel a sense of affinity with a monastery. But the monasteries that we have are filled up with people from countries from all over the world, but mostly they're Westerners. And there's a reason why the Westerners are coming to these monasteries rather than to the Thai monastery. Okay? And so these are not trivial topics to navigate and if there aren't people in the monastery who see a value in navigating them it's really difficult to make ground in these areas now the forest watt model is based on that it's important that the one 
senior monk is usually the one who interfaces with the lay community and everybody else is encouraged not to speak. Okay? Everyone else is encouraged to do their practice and their practice remains not having contact or speaking or much interaction with the lay community. All right? What I've experienced is, is, is that in a Western context, we need to be circumspect about what's right relationship with solitude. Because so many of us come from fractured families that actually we don't need to be sitting forever and ever and ever by ourselves looking at the walls. We actually need to develop the kind of warmth and friendship and kinship ties where we feel enough safety and support with each other to be able to make use of the solitude when the solitude times actually arise. So developing community as a practice has been something that the community has taken up and the sisters with a particular interest because we have seen what happens when we don't. Hindrances to practice can stop practice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've been invited on numberless occasions to come and join the monks and the uh, Thai community in different celebrations. Now, I know... uh, Christine and I went one one evening or one afternoon, and uh, we were welcomed, but by the same token, um, we had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they had invited us to stay, because the food was unbelievable. We were invited to stay for that. Uh, we didn't wind up staying that long, but everything was going on in time. So it would be, you know, it would be kind of difficult. Now, the um, there was, up until, I don't know, when did Sila leave? But when, when Sila was there, we had a little more yeah. interaction with him. In fact, I remember he did come one evening and actually give a Dharma talk, which was kind of neat. But also he was fluent in English. Right, yeah. So in a, in a Thai walk like this, oftentimes what happens is the Thai water is here because of the invitation of the Thai lay people. And the Thai lay people understand the culture and they are completely willing and able to provide adequate support. And so the Thai monks are not needing to interface with the Western people. And because they don't necessarily see there's a value in translating things into English in order to make it welcoming, then it's not happening. Yeah, because they have what they need. It's already set up. They've got the situation that actually works for them. And so you're welcome to join them in their culture. But it's a little bit weird in New Mexico to go to Thailand, you know, in Albuquerque. So there has to be either an affinity with what's happening there and a sense of, well, why is this of value? Or there's not a lot of willingness to make that effort to be part of a Thai cultural center. Yeah. And that, again, comes partly because of the fact that you've got Thai monks who have grown up in Thailand and who are invited here and supported by a Thai community. Yeah. What's happening for them works for them. Yeah. With all the wandering around that we have done in our history from one place to another, varying from people's basements to board rooms, this has always felt to me as a, as a wonderful place to be, to practice. And there's always that basis of gratitude. Mm-hmm. 
you know that they're offering a space to practice and they're offering it out of kindness and generosity and that that is a place of practice so it's not like you're going into a casino you know room you know and so there is a basis of gratitude even if there isn't a whole lot of other um, places or contexts for interacting and that's something to return to again and again and again and refer to back and make much of and have occasions for expressing the gratitude and acknowledging it and honoring that and that is suitable Wondering back to um, my original question, when you when you're in the monastery, or when you were in the monastery, and there was a you know major conflict, you know, like some nuns were having sex with each other, or something, you know, um, that was against the rules. How was that dealt with? So, um, if nuns were having sex with each other, they wouldn't be nuns. So, one of the things that we have as a basic thing is our Vinaya discipline, which delineates certain things that can, uh, you know, be cleared and certain things that cannot be cleared. So, certain kinds of sexual behavior is not something that can be cleared. Yeah? Well, we haven't had nuns having sex with each other, so that I don't know. How we would, I, 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 I don't know. I haven't experienced going through a procedure with that happening. Yeah, but there's a whole. One of the things about being a monk or a nun is this: is that we've got um, quite an extensive monastic discipline that is in, in part of our training, and with our monastic discipline are a number of rules. And with each rules are different categories of offenses. And these different offenses can be cleared or not cleared depending on the seriousness of the offense. Okay? So when it comes to things like that, there are certain procedures that can be used for clearing certain things. And then other things require different kinds of procedures. Yeah? But mostly the problem in the community is not around sex or the breaking of the rules in that way. It's around these areas where people feel need to be discussed and some people feel we can't discuss that okay so when you have a situation like that where one group feels that something needs to be talked about and another group is saying no we don't want to talk about it then it comes back to basic dynamics around who's got the authority to make the decision about whether we can talk or not talk And so if the group who's asking to talk is confronted with, we don't want to talk and we have the authority to say we don't want to talk, then the group who's asking to talk is left without a whole lot of recourse other than within their own practice. Yeah. And so that has been um, one of the dilemmas that has emerged is because the way that the sisters are working is of wanting to negotiate and talk about certain things. And what has been happening is, is that they had been greeted with, we don't want to talk. And so um, then the sisters have been left with trying to figure out, well, all right, now where are we with all of this? So the main issues in the community often are not to do with the rules. Mm -hmm. They're to do with, you know, normal things like who's got the authority and views and opinions about how things should be decided and who needs to be consulted and what kind of consultation processes are appropriate and who gets to decide that and who has input. 
It's not about rules. It sounds like the power dynamics that everyone struggles with. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It does seem as though, in some ways, it's not the habit of talking about pressure. You know, just the frames we come in with. Right. Because in a way, you know, it's neutral. It's like a bare experience. Bare experience. Right. It doesn't have gender. Doesn't have you know this and that. But that it's the same struggles. I know one thing I've always thought about this whole thing about well, with the taking care for opposite genders not to be alone, right? like a nun not being able to be with a male. And I just thought, oh, that seems so old and based in an old culture, right? But it doesn't recognize that that's not the only way things go. <laughs> but that yet it gets perpetuated. So I don't know if that, if there's any movement around seeing that some things are useful but maybe outdated or don't necessarily reflect. You know, or like, are there communities that get, well, it's not always opposite sex attraction. And so, you know, the thing is about taking care. That's right, yeah. So, one of the things which I have found quite uh, interesting is is that the monastic community isn't very homophobic, okay? So, with all these other kinds of traditional things that are going on, that one isn't really a big problem. Mm -hmm. And so then, within the monastics, the individual monks and nuns who come into the community, it has been, up until this point, a little bit left unto the individual discretion of what kind of care is needed in order to take care. So there hasn't been any kind of a policy that has been initiated to create structures that say, well, you know, if your sexual orientation tends towards this direction, then these are the kinds of things that you need to observe. But it has come up in our discussions around linear discipline. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I for one make a point of breaking it up because it's obvious that it's a point that needs to be talked about, Mm -hmm. you know. So... um, and yet the tradition is organized around a particular model and that particular model is the way in which the culture operates, you know. And so, you know, there are these things that are um, discordant mm-hmm. in some ways and um, they haven't all been worked out. Yeah. 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 about the mention of this missing devotional piece and wondering if there are ways that it has happened or could bring that into lesson songs or with your experience with this idea of I mean, meditation or vipassana being pulled out how has that happened or well, I know when I teach a retreat, you know, devotion is certainly a part of the retreat. And so we, we do chanting in the morning and the evening, and we have ceremonies to begin a retreat, and we have ceremonies to close a retreat. And the whole devotional element is woven in as just a normal part of what we're doing during the day. And most of the time, the feedback that I get is just that people are really moved by that. Yeah. They find it very nourishing. So... You know, for example, on the website I've got mantra chanting, you know, and on these CDs that are going to be passed around on these memory sticks and stuff, there's mantra chanting. 
so that it's easy for people to learn the mantra chanting and just to make a point of doing the mantra chanting. And then tomorrow evening, we're going to do overtone chanting. So overtone chanting is a different kind of chanting. The mantra chanting and the reflective chanting uses words and language, and the overtone chanting just uses sound. But basically what it's doing is it's energetically connecting on a a level of sound and energy as another element of practice. And some people find it incredibly helpful, you know, as a way of getting out of the head, opening up the body, allowing things to open and balance and relax, and learning how to relax and to rest in something which is deeply and profoundly restful that's not will-based or will-driven. And so, you know, there's all kinds of applications of this which is useful. Jack Cornfield invited me a couple of years ago to come to Spirit Rock and teach a, a bhakti and vipassana retreat. So bhakti is devotion. Yeah. So the first monastic retreat that was held at Spirit Rock, Ajahnamara and I led, it was 98, I think. And they were just in the process of you know, finishing up some of the buildings. In one of the walking rooms underground, I turned into the bhakti underground. So they hadn't painted the walls yet, and we wrote devotional poems and songs and chant, and we went down there and chanted at the top of our lungs every single day. And it was like, you know, it actually helped settle the field because when you just have new buildings in a place, it's unsettled. And so it actually was part of the, you know, I, for me, I could see that it was actually helpful. But it hasn't worked. I mean, I haven't yet been scheduled to come back and teach a bhakti and vipassana retreat, but maybe that can happen. <laughs> but I'd love to, because for me, they absolutely can go together, you know. Yeah. We've been trying for a number, number of years mm-hmm. to get some panting into our um, Thursday night meetings, and it just hasn't come about. And... Um, the only retreat that we that I've done recently where there was chanting was the retreat, the last retreat with um, with Steve and Pamela. And they would start off with, with the chanting, which I think is lovely. Mm. But we haven't been able to get anywhere with the, with the concept. Yeah, well, these kinds of things have a lot of energy in them. You know, and so you like it or you don't like it, or it should be this way or that way, or it should be poly or it should be English, or it should not be poly, it should not be English. I mean, it's like there's a lot of energy in all of this stuff. And and so, you know, I'm not surprised. It's like it would take either a very clear, focused, uh, determined effort on a small subgroup to just go ahead and start doing chanting, and then that would catch on, or a strong leader in the community. But, you know, like talking about conflict, you know, you know, we have a chanting book, you know, and, and to change the chanting book, you know, was like unimaginable, absolutely unimaginable conflict. You know, it's the chanting book, you know. And so the person who volunteered to do the typesetting of the chanting book, he was being just attacked, you know, just viciously attacked. And so then he, he would hand it back to them and he said, look, there is an and there and it's absolutely okay. I want you to look at that and and see that it's completely okay. That and is just completely okay, just the way it is. <laughs> because it's just off the wall. So, you know, sometimes what happens in a community is, is that, you know, a lot of energy builds up and doesn't have places to release, and then you have something like the chanting book, and it all goes there, you know. <laughs> One of the things that we talk about quite a bit is 
being accessible to a wide range of people. And I think there are different thoughts about how to do that. And so one of them is, I think one strategy sometimes has been to kind of scale it back and be as non, not not having any trappings of Buddhism, which I think actually means devotion (laughs) in some ways, right? The bowing and the chanting. And then, so I think we, I don't know, I think sometimes now we're seeing, oh, maybe, you know, we can't just rely on that one Thursday night. Leave it be other people self-organized. And then if there's interest, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think part of it is also as a community, you take care of it. There are a lot of perspectives, a lot of, you know, it's, it's, it's an art, right? To create the community and not always have what you want. And, and have the energy maybe to create it in a different form. Not just like, well, I can't get to Thursday night. You know, Thursday night exists. It's so simple. Rather than saying, okay, maybe next Saturday we do it. You know, so I just think that's, it yeah. seems to me in part that's part of right. being in community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, if we have this, we have some healthy debate. Yeah. The monastic community has a slightly different model, which is is that, you know, we do it like this and everyone is welcome. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is what we offer and if you like it, you're welcome. Yeah. And so then if people find a sense of affinity, they come. And the way it has been working in these monasteries in England with Western monks and nuns is that there's an international group. I don't know, I think they last counted at Chitters. There's 18 different nationalities of monks and nuns who are present. And then, you know, at that gathering, I don't know how many, but I think there are probably 30 or 40 different nationalities of people who are present. And so there was a sense of, well, you know, there is some diversity that's happening here, and that's just nationalities in terms of diversity. It was in other kinds of places of looking at diversity. And so uh, yeah, different people are coming at this from different perspectives, you know. I think, you know, there's looking at the diversity issue is a worthwhile issue. We had this teacher's meeting that we just had at Gaia House, you know. There was not one person who was there who was had skin color other than this kind of skin color, you know. And there were, these were teachers, right? There was not one person there. And so, you know, it's a topic. What's happening that, you know, the only thing that's going is white, you know. And you know, from the perspective of coming, having lived in more traditional monasteries, I can see that when you abstract it out of the tradition, then it's actually quite a challenge to get the traditional people back in because they can't recognize it, you know. So most traditional Buddhists will not come and sit quietly for now. They don't like to meditate, mm-hmm. okay. They give. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Or they work or they help or they support but they don't sit for an hour silently and meditate. They'll listen to a Dhamma talk, you know. They'll come to a celebration. But, so, what's happened is it's been extracted out of a culture, and then there's an interest for the culture then to diversify. And so it's a little bit like, well, which way, which things first, you know. It's not that there's anything wrong, but it's just an interesting exploration about the way things are unfolding. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a 
but the organizers or the leadership community we don't agree with. So it's not, this is the way we do it. Come in if you like it. I think there's a debate among the people who are doing organizing on what that should be. And that's natural, because in a monastery, people don't agree either. And sometimes it's just the senior person or the senior people who say, well, this is the way it's going to be, and, you know, like it or love it, depending on their communication skills and mm-hmm. how well they are able to negotiate with the different voices. But it's often the case that people don't agree. I mean, that's just really common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's right. And that's, that's healthy. But I think you know the difference is is, is, is that you know the monastery is a is a is a is a, is a, is a platform for which Dhamma and Sila and Bhavana take place. It's not just a place for Bhavana, and so people then can access it at whatever level they want. Mm-hmm. And so you know, if people are not interested in meditating, they can still come and take the precepts. You know, or they can still come and help in the kitchen. You know, and so automatically you have a crisscross of people with a whole diversity of interests mm-hmm. that can come together mm-hmm. and, and 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 so that can work mm-hmm. you know but you know in a lay situation you've got a slightly different situation but there's no reason why you can't have precepts being offered or there's no reason why you know that you you know there's things that can happen it depends on what your needs are it depends you know when you're talking about diversity what mm-hmm. that might look like you know I mean, the argument that's been made against it is that will scare people off if we take the precepts. I don't tend to agree with that, but that's the tension in the Sangha. But some people say if you take the precepts, you know, maybe there's someone who's breaking them, so they'll just feel guilty, they won't want to come. Mm-hmm. You know? I tend to think, you take the, there's, a, there's a point of inspiration, right, because it isn't about judgment. But so that's some of the, ten, you know, that's why we don't do it. Because people don't reach agreement about, yeah, what the effect will be for people. And, so, and we don't have a, a hierarchy where we just say, okay, that's how it's going to be done, right? So the groups work, you know, so. And so from that model, there's um, all kinds of advantages that come. But one of the things that happens from the perspective that I've lived, which is the opposite perspective of this is what we have to offer and you're welcome to come if you like it, is is that a clear standard is created and presented and that that's kind of the basis. You know, we do kind of this is the flavor that we present Mm -hmm. and that anyone who has any resonance with this is welcome. But based around that flavor, then there's all kinds of other things that happen. So there's forest days and there's garden days and their celebration days and nobody is forced to take the precepts on the celebration days it's just everyone there's an invitation if people want to and so it's like well this is what we offer and this is the kind of things that we do and these are the kinds of things that we make available and then in that a natural diversity emerges mm-hmm. okay so we're not trying to make it so that everyone feels comfortable at all times at all situations and all occasions we've got a kind of basis yeah we keep the precepts we meditate we practice and talk about dhana, and we take care of the monastery and each other in the community. And then around that, we can explore other kinds of things that can happen. Yeah. But that's coming from, you know, this is who we are, this is what we do, and, you know, and we feel, you know, the elders of the community have a lot of confidence in that because they have seen that that has worked, mm-hmm. you know and that there's enough goodness in that to prevail with that as, a, as an attitude. As a, as a Western group of people who are all 
almost all are are not Buddhist born. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have that confidence. And so there's a sense of how can we include people without actually knowing, well, who are we? And what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And let's just stand with who we are and what we're doing and let that be the strong place around which diversity can emerge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what Tarania talked to us about when she was here. She did a residency here and she in my recollection, said a very similar thing, which is just be who you are and own who you are. And don't, you know, try to soft-pedal your intention. Just put it out there. Exactly. Because what are you interested in? That's right. It's liberation. That's right. And so just make it that. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. You can go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the places where things get um, can get uh, interesting is when you have an organization or a community that doesn't have a um, a cohesive agreement about who you are and have a, a structure about how decisions are made. And you've got a whole variety of views and opinions about what are the priorities that need to be included. So some people think inclusiveness is the value that needs to be included. And other people think the, 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 the um, adherence to the Dhamma is the value that needs to be upheld. And you don't have a way of agreeing of all of these values, which are the ones that we prioritize. Yeah. Then it's natural that you're going to come up against these things and it's going to be a, quite a process to come to a decision about how to move forward. Yeah, that's natural. From a monastic community, we're clear. Uh, we are Buddhists. We keep the precepts. <laughs> we, we meditate. <laughs> we live with sila. We talk about sila. And it's like, that's what we do. Now, I don't put that onto people in a situation that's not appropriate. So if I'm visiting a group or I'm talking to people who, like the Theosophical Society, I don't come with, you know, keeping the precepts, you know. That's not the place where I will talk. But as an identity, I'm not confused about who I am and what I do and what we're doing there. Yeah. But it, I didn't start out that way. You know. I mean, I've, I've been a nun for 20 years now. You know. So, and when I started out, you know, I wanted to change all kinds of things. You know, the first week I was there as an Anagarica, I was convinced I should rewrite the whole thing. You know. <laughs> Because it was like, you know, you've got to be joking. This stuff is not the way it should be, you know. But part of the value of being in a tradition like this is is that you're up against something that's strong enough and doesn't move very fast. You are having to struggle with these kind of views and opinions and ideas about right and wrong and justice and inclusion and fairness and, 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 you know, and watch the difference between what is an opinion and a view and actually something that has a significant amount of, of truth in it. And it takes a while to actually be able to discern the difference. And that's why even these traditional models that have things that I feel are culturally a little bit biased have value for quite a significant period of time to be able to work out some of this stuff, you know? How are you doing? Are you getting tired? Yeah. I wonder if you could spell out uh, a little more clearly what exactly you need for your vision and what you're wanting to do, what kinds of things that 
you think uh, could happen that might uh, make that happen? Um, thank you for that question. That's a helpful question. I am clear that there's categorically no way that I'm going to be able to do this by myself. All right? That is absolutely clear. So what is needed is to have a group of people who are in communication or relationship or in cooperation with each other who are focused on helping this happen. In order for that to happen, we need organizers. We need people who are willing to network. We need people who are willing to be on the Facebook and update it and put notices out. We need people who are interested in transcribing talks, who are willing to extract things from talks and and edit them. We need people who are interested in letting people know that this is happening and sharing to see how many other people are interested in supporting it. Uh, I need to have personal exposure in terms of talking and teaching and meeting people. In order for that to happen, there needs to be people who are willing to invite me, to put me up, to drive me, to offer food. Those are a few things. Somebody's offered money to rent a house. I need a team of people to help um, uh, look at the housing listings and, and, and vet them so that the ones that I'm looking at are the, are the most obvious ones rather than all of them. Somebody has offered to put up money uh, to buy a house. Uh, if there's somebody else who wants to invest, then they need to talk together. I mean, it's like... You know, the list goes on and on. So there's many, many things that are needed. But basically what's needed is more hands on deck, you know, and some organization and uh, a little bit more networking. And then beyond that, it's a question of what what gives people joy, what their talents and skills are, what they have energy for, and uh, what helps them also come alive in their own practice. So we have a little nucleus of a group of people who are incredibly dedicated, but we're going to need more help. Well, I don't know if this is the, the time or place to like make a list or anything, but I'm just I'm feeling very inspired. You know, ever since I met you yesterday, I'm like, you know, I want to help you out in whatever degree I can, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be a busy student pretty soon. But you know, I can definitely help you network and Facebook and. Um, I've worked with the, the local organic foods in Kansas City some and might get into that some here too. So, you know, whatever you need, put it out there and then I think people will sign up. So one of the things is, is that as a nun, I'm not allowed to ask unless people make an invitation. So I am cautious about putting it out there until people tell me I want to know. So I can't actually put it on the website. These are all the things that I need unless I'm clear that that's actually what people are wanting to know, okay? And so, you know, our training is to be very circumspect about what we ask for. So I've got a Donna list that's on the web, all right? You know, basic needs that I need. So if people want to know what I need, they can check on the Donna list and see about, you know, possible ways of getting things. I could shoot some cold air into everyone that way. Um, I was asking if you needed transportation tomorrow, if there was anything you wanted to do. I think this visit is now sorted. I think the only thing um, 
there's an opportunity to offer a meal tomorrow, but it's not needed because I'll still be at um, Valerie's house and she'll be there in the morning. So there's an opportunity. And we're going to do your packed lunch on Friday. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. But I think in terms of this visit, all the logistics are taken care of. Yeah. And you're getting the job job tomorrow night? That's right. Yeah. I had a conversation with Eric, and it was remarkable how that conversation went. Because I said, it's up to Eric to decide. So Eric said, well, why don't you do it? And then I said, well, why don't we share it? And then he said, that would be great. Let's share it. And then we were talking, and he said, no, let's not share it. You do it. (laughs) And I said, all right, I'll do it as long as you introduce it. He said, all right. He's coming. He's here. Yeah, he's here. He did interviews today, and he'll be there tomorrow night, and then he's teaching the CDL program. The Community Dharma Leadership Program. There's a program out of Spirit Rock that has been um, operating for senior students who are interested in starting their own groups. And Gina Sharp from New York flew out today because she's leading that with Eric. So I had no idea any of these things were happening. I know Gina, and I've been wanting to speak with her for a number of months. And so it just, it's just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all kinds of things that are happening that I don't know about. So it's been very fortuitous. Yeah. So, yeah, and so if there's other people who want to get involved, you know, it's great. And there's lots of things that can happen on, like, on your own time kind of thing. So, like, if you want to take a talk and transcribe it or if you want to do some editing, there's no pressure around stuff like that. You just pick it up and do it in between whenever you have time. And if it takes a month or two months or three months, it's fair enough. And that kind of thing is an interactive thing, and so actually it can be helpful in terms of your own Dhamma practice because you're actually interacting with the Dhamma. So that can be useful. And there's somebody who had offered to coordinate transcribing, but she's been suffering a lot with poor health. And I don't know that she's actually up for doing that coordination role at the moment until her health improves. So, So, you know, these are the kinds of things that are needed. But there's, I think, a fair amount that can happen on the Internet, you know. And then, I don't know. I am clear about where I'm going. I'm not actually clear about how to get there. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, part of it is is that I hope if I put it out there, then everybody else will tell me a little bit how you get there, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Okay. Thank you again. Yes. See you tomorrow night? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Thank you for coming. So, um... Is this a good pausing point, or do you have more questions still? I just wonder if we have Donna baskets. We have a white bowl for teacher Donna and a, a pitcher for Sangha Donna. And they're on the table in here. Good. Those of us who heard yeah, Donna yesterday know how she's capitalized on the community and we have the opportunity for teacher Donna which will support her teaching. And I understand that the expenses of the visit are available to address those. This is not so to Donna. Just call it attention to. 
So shall we sit with a few minutes of silence? Is that a good thing? Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.